Thank you very much for being a part of our church service today. It is our desire here at Riverstone Church that God's Word will work in you to produce an abundant filled life. May the Lord bless you as you listen to this sermon. The Word of the Lord in Deuteronomy chapter 26 as we continue to worship the Lord Jesus Christ through His Word. Deuteronomy, it says, the Israelites, then we cried to the Lord, the God of our fathers, and the Lord heard our voice and saw our affliction and our toil and our oppression. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm and with great terror and with signs and wonders. And he has brought us to this place and has given us this land a land flowing with milk and honey. Jesus, once again, we come before you and I ask you in these moments, Lord, that you would help us to know and understand, God, how you are the fulfillment, Jesus. Jesus, you are the fulfillment of so much of what we read and understand in the Old Testament. You become the fulfillment of it, O Lord Jesus. And the things that we participate in, even in this local body, point very specifically to the work which you have done. God, just like the Israelites in the Old Testament looked forward to a Redeemer, God, we look back to the cross realizing that our redemption has already been purchased through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And our hope is now in his soon return as believers in him. And so, God, we thank you right now for this moment that we have to spend in your word, Lord Jesus. And we pray by the power of the Spirit God, that you would feed to us the bread of life. God, that we would feast upon your word. Oh, Lord. And that as we leave this place, there would be no lack, God, but that we would carry with us basketfuls of the word of God to go out and to feed a lost and dying world. Oh, Jesus, help us. Help us, Lord. In your name, we ask these things. We pray these things, Lord Jesus. Amen and amen. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Amen. Praise the Lord. God is good, isn't he? Isn't it good to be in his presence? Good to be with his people? Good to know that we are fellowshipping together, that we're doing a work for him, for his glory. Not our own glory, but for his glory. Building things of eternal value, not temporal value. 
Not things that will pass away, not things that can be stored up or the stock market might crash or, or rust can come get it or somebody can come steal it, but storing up for ourselves treasure in heaven. That's what this is about. When we worship, we're lifting it up into the heavenly place and we're depositing our praise in the heavenly place. That's where our treasure is. Yes. Putting our treasure in the heavenly places where the Lord is guarding and keeping it until that day. And so I rejoice in his presence. I'm glad you're here. I'm excited for what the Lord has for us tonight. I appreciate those of you who are watching uh, tonight and both in the morning. Thank you for joining us online as well. Uh, but I want to begin tonight in kind of a little different way. Tonight's message is going to be a little different than what uh, our, our usual uh, sermons are because I don't want to work through some things that point us to some of the acts that we do together as a church. And tonight, it's going to lead us into baptism. But over the next few weeks, we'll have another baptism in, in two weeks from uh, tomorrow. Uh, we'll have at least, I believe, four or five others being baptized. We have six tonight, two last Sunday, that Saturday night, six tonight, uh, maybe four or five, two Sundays from tomorrow. So we're excited about that, people following the Lord Jesus Christ in baptism. We'll also be joining together in Holy Communion next Sunday during the morning services. And then next Sunday night, we will join together in uh, foot washing. And I want to speak to you about all three of those things uh, tonight as a part of the message to help you understand why we're doing these things and why God has called us to this purpose at, uh, on Insurance Lane in Charlottesville, Virginia. I'm excited for what God is doing. God's doing good things. So I want to pull from the Old Testament, reminding us of Deuteronomy 26, that much of what happened in the Old Testament of how God delivered the Israelites, God called them to repeat that and rehearse that in generation after generation after generation. And so... We're going to sort of talk through the Old Testament story, and then I'm going to pull from what Jesus instituted in the New Testament to help us kind of tie this together before we move into baptism at the end of the message. Before I begin in the story, I want to remind you that this coming uh, Saturday, uh, we will have uh, the Riverstone Discipleship Institute, which will begin at 9 a.m. until 11 a.m. Brother Jay Temple is going to be leading that, continuing our session on spiritual warfare. It was excellent last time. We had a great group. Uh, invite your friends. Be part of that uh, this coming Saturday at 9 a.m. And before I get to the message, that is juice in those glasses there. Just so in case anyone wonders. <laughs> when you're reading through uh, the early portions of Scripture, Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, you get a sense of the story of uh, the Israelites. And we get to the point of the flood of Noah and at the flood... Uh, after the flood, sometime after the flood of Noah, God chose a man named Abram to inherit this land of promise, the land of Canaan, which essentially includes modern-day Israel and some other land around that. 
Although Abraham and his wife were old, God promised him a son that would be the one who would uh, be one of the inheritors of that land of Canaan, which was promised to Abram. In a meeting with God, the Lord changed Abram's name to Abraham, reaffirmed to him the promise that he was going to give him a son and that he was going to inherit this promised land. Abraham had a son, and his son's name was Isaac, and Isaac was born, and he uh, grew into a man and took a woman whose name was Rebekah as his wife. Rebekah conceived twins whose names were Jacob, the younger one, and Esau, the older. God gave Rebekah a promise that Jacob would be greater than Esau, and indeed, Jacob was blessed over Esau and inherited the promise that was given to Abraham to inherit the land of Canaan, as well as from him would become a great nation of people. Jacob eventually married two wives, Leah and Rachel. Through his wives and through their maids, Jacob had 12 sons. The youngest son was Joseph, to whom God revealed his plans and dreams and gave him the ability to interpret those dreams. So Joseph, uh, he was referred to as a dreamer. God gave him dreams, but God also gave him the ability to interpret those dreams. Joseph was the favorite son of his father, and he was despised by his other brothers. And they took him one day and sold him to uh, some traders, and eventually the traders sold him into service, slavery in Egypt. And it was there in Egypt that God was with Joseph in everything that he did. The Pharaoh of Egypt had dreams which disturbed him, and no one was able to interpret those dreams for the Pharaoh except for Joseph. Joseph shared with Pharaoh that what God had revealed to him in dreams, was he shared with him what was going to happen based upon the dreams that Pharaoh had. And one of those dreams said there was going to be seven years of plenty followed by seven years of famine. And Joseph shared with Pharaoh what needed to be done in order to prepare for those seven years of famine by storing up in the seven years of plenty. And Pharaoh put Joseph in charge of all that collection and the storing of grain, and he elevated him to the second in command of all of Egypt. The seven years of plenty came and passed, and Egypt was prepared for the seven years of famine. And the rest of the sons of Jacob, Joseph's brothers, who still lived over in Canaan, the land that God had promised to Abraham, they were not prepared for the famine. And in order to survive, they went to Egypt in order to buy food. The brothers were astonished to learn that Joseph had risen to such a position of promise. And ultimately, Jacob and all of his family, about 70 people, moved to Egypt to live in the land of Goshen within within Egypt. God blessed the Israelites in Egypt. But over time, new Egyptian rulers arose who did not know Joseph, and they began to persecute the Israelites for fear as they were growing in population that they would begin to take over the Egyptian nation. The Egyptians became brutal 
taskmasters and enslaved the Israelites. The Israelites groaned under the heavy burden of the persecution and the hard labor that was forced upon them by their Egyptian taskmasters. And it was 400 years that passed since the time of Joseph and the Egyptians' fear of the Israelites continued to grow and to cause them to enact a decree that all the male babies that were born uh, to the Israelites were to be thrown and cast into the Nile. An Israelite woman had a baby and in order to try to save him, she made a little boat out of uh, the reeds in the river. And she put him in that boat and she floated him in the Nile and the boat came to the attention of Pharaoh's own daughter who was bathing at the edge of the river. And she raised the baby as her own and she named that baby Moses. Moses lived in Egypt in the court of Pharaoh for about 40 years. One time as he was out uh, walking, he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew And he got so angry that he killed the Egyptian and he hit him in the sand. And it was found out Moses fled in the wilderness and he found a wife and he tended sheep with his father-in-law for another 40 years. It was about at this time that God spoke to Moses. At about 80 years old, you're never too old to hear the voice of the Lord. Never too old to hear the voice of the Lord. He spoke to Moses through a bush that was set ablaze, but the bush didn't burn. What an awesome sight that must have been. And from the bush, God spoke. And God told Moses to go back to Egypt and to bring the Israelites. When they went into Egypt, were about 70. Now at this point, when God spoke to them, many believe there were about two and a half million people. Bring that two and a half million people out of the land to the land that had been promised to Abraham way back in the beginning. God never forgot his promise. God never relented. God never recanted. God never said it's over. The Israelites had lived in Egypt about 430 years to this point. Moses went to Pharaoh to tell him to let the Israelites go out of Egypt in order that they might worship God. By the way, you can fill in all the details from the Bible. Read the scriptures. Let them fill in all the details here for you. Pharaoh would not allow them to leave, and his heart became more and more hard. God performed mighty signs and wonders in Egypt. There were ten plagues that showed the overwhelming power and might of Jehovah God over the pagan deities that the Egyptians worshipped. If you do your research and you dig in, what you find is one plague after the other crushes down what the Egyptians worshipped. One after the other after the other falls at the feet of Jehovah God. God had foretold through his prophet Moses that the Israelites would leave Egypt in a hurry. They were told that the final plague would be upon all those in Egypt who did not follow the exact commands of God. They were to kill a lamb for dinner and take some of its blood and put it on a branch and they were to strike the lintel and the two doorposts outside their house. What picture does that bring to your mind? Striking the lentil and then striking the doorpost. What does it push us to foreshadow but the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ that would come sometime later? 
They were to cook the lamb and they were to eat it in haste with their coats and staffs in their hand. This was the first Passover. In the night, the death angel would pass over Egypt and all the firstborn of Egypt would die from Pharaoh's son in the palace to the lowliest servant in the field. All of those who did not have the blood of the lamb on the lentil and on the doorposts. At the death of his son, Pharaoh cast the Israelites out of Egypt and into the wilderness. And in haste, the Israelites left Egypt and went into the wilderness. And Pharaoh, realizing that his slave labor had left, mustered all the armies of Egypt and began to pursue them as far as the Red Sea. And at the Red Sea, here is God's chosen people standing, looking before them, this huge body of water and behind them an army who desires to kill them. An impossible place, isn't it? But not for a God for whom nothing is impossible. God placed a pillar of cloud between the Egyptians and the Israelites and commanded Moses to stretch his hand over the Red Sea. As Moses did this, the sea parted and the land between the two walls of water became dry. And the Israelites passed through the Red Sea safely and they came to the other side. And as the pillar of cloud moved and the Egyptians tried to pass through on that same track of land and follow the Israelites to the other side, the two walls of water closed in over them and destroyed them before they could reach the other side of the Red Sea. After the deliverance at the Red Sea, the Israelites were headed to the land that was originally promised to Abraham so many years ago. They sent spies into the land to see how they could conquer it. The spies spent 40 days in the land of Canaan. Of the 12 spies who went, all came back fearful of what awaited them in the land of promise, except for two, Joshua and Caleb. The 10 spies created fear in the people of Israel. And they decided, the Israelites, that they did not want to go into the promised land. So God forced them to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. All of the generation of those who were fearful died out and a new generation arose. When the 40 years were complete, one for each day that the spies were in Canaan. Joshua, the successor to Moses, led the people to enter the promised land. Before they entered the promised land, they had to cross the Jordan River. And in Joshua 3, God commanded the priests to take up the Ark of the Covenant and step in the Jordan. In verse 13, it says, And it will come about when the soles of the feet of the priests who carry the Ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, rest in the waters of the Jordan. The waters of the Jordan will be cut off. That is, the waters which are flowing down from above, and they will stand in one heap. Verses 15 and 16 says, And when those who were carrying the ark came up to the Jordan, and the feet of the priests carrying the ark stepped down into the edge of the water, then the waters which were flowing down from above stood and rose up in one heap. As the waters rose up, dry land appeared, and the Israelites crossed over to the other side into the land of promise, where the feet of the priests stood in the water, a leader of each tribe grabbed a stone and took it to the other side and built an altar to the Lord to remember God's faithfulness. The deliverance of the Israelites from the Egyptians is the greatest 
miracle of God's deliverance and salvation in the Old Testament. Their entrance into the promised land is a reminder, a very powerful reminder of God's sovereignty to lead you and me according to his plan. And we could just leave it at that, enjoy the Old Testament story and kind of move on. But I think there is a lot more that is relevant to you and me out of this Old Testament story. The story of Israel's deliverance and the entrance into the promised land speaks very clearly to you and to me about the New Testament practices of communion and baptism and foot washing. With regards to communion, as the Israelites celebrated their Passover in the years that passed after the original Passover, they looked back to the deliverance from Egyptian bondage. Passover celebration for them was a time for children to ask and to talk about and to think about God's mighty deliverance out of Egypt. When Jesus was with his disciples the night before he was betrayed, he opened to them a new covenant greater than the previous covenant. The first Passover was instituted as a memorial. The Lord's Supper was also instituted as a memorial. In the previous covenant, the blood of the lamb on the doorpost alerted the death angel to pass over the Israelite homes. In the new covenant, Jesus, who is our Passover lamb, sheds his blood for the remission of our sins, that at the great judgment, we too will be passed over. Jesus is the greater Passover lamb, for he has delivered us from the bondage of sin, and he has welcomed us into his kingdom. When we receive the Lord's Supper, what we have to use right now are those plastic cups with the peel back sort of stuff and the wafers and the juice that doesn't actually taste like juice. And that's what we have to use in this age of distancing. But as originally instituted and as the Passover took shape, there were actually four cups that were received. And it comes out of Exodus chapter six and seven where there are four I will statements that the Lord says. There's the first, the cup of sanctification that I will bring you, I will bring you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. The second cup was the cup of judgment. I will deliver you from their bondage. I will bring you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from their bondage. The third cup, the cup after supper, Luke is very specific about that. This is always the cup in the meal that is taken after supper, the third cup. The third cup taken after supper, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. The third cup is what Jesus had in the communion that we read about in the Gospels. The cup after supper. And then Jesus says after the third cup, I will not uh, drink of the fruit of the vine again until I do it with you, with my Father in glory. Which meaning at the, what we refer to as the marriage supper of the Lamb. Yes. 
That's why we look forward to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Because what happened in communion in the Gospels is they didn't get all the way through the meal. They got to the third cup, the cup of redemption. And Jesus gives them the cup of redemption. And what happens the very next day? He dies on the cross to redeem them from their sins. The very next day, after they have taken of the cup of redemption and they've drank it together, he goes and he, uh, he he's actually physically dies on the cross, sheds his blood to redeem them from their sins. And he says, I'm not going to partake of the last cup. I'm not going to drink again of the fruit of the vine until I do it with you in the new kingdom that is going to come. And so the fourth cup of the I will statement is the cup of praise. I will take you for my people and I will be your God. So what we as believers, when we receive communion together, when we gather around the table and we take that little wafer and we take that juice, it's not just something that we beforehand we're praying, oh God, forgive me of my sins, reconcile me to other people, help me, oh Lord Jesus. What we're doing, we're taking the cup of redemption. I am redeemed in Jesus and I am looking forward doing this until he comes because I'm keeping taking the third cup until I can drink the cup of praise with him in his kingdom and in his glory. You see, the beauty of that in the Old Testament Passover story, taking the cup, Jesus taking the cup, the third cup, waiting for the fourth cup. You know, we go back to Christmas and we think about the song, and I, I love it at Christmas time, is O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. I shared that with you this Christmas season because it's just kind of, it's sort of a melancholy song, and it, the way it's sung, it sort of is this longing and anticipation and wondering and wanting Jesus to come and to save a Messiah, to come and save Israel. That's how we are in this season of our life, longing for the return of the Lord. When we take communion, we're partaking of the cup of redemption in anticipation and hope. This is why Jesus says, do this until I come. He took the cup after supper. The Passover pointed to redemption that would come through Jesus. This is what we do when we take communion together. We'll take communion together next Sunday. We'll receive of the fruit of the vine. And as we do it, we anticipate the coming of the Lord. We also find in the Exodus story, the symbolism and the pushing us to and the connection to uh, baptism in the New Testament. As the Israelites were brought out of the bondage of Egypt, they passed through the Red Sea on dry ground. They were a people called out from among the pagans to be God's own people. The passing through the waters was uh, their baptism as God's very own people. When they passed through the Red Sea, this was in essence them passing through the waters. The old life in Egypt was no more. The slavery was no more. The beatings were no more. The persecution was no more. The mingling with the pagan idols was to be in the past. 
past. And as they passed through the Red Sea, they were born into a new people led by God. The old life in Egypt had passed away and the new life was ahead of them. And in the New Testament, this is exactly what baptism symbolizes. It symbolizes new life as well. As we stand in the waters, we're symbolically standing as the old man under the bondage of sin. As we testify to the saving grace of Jesus, we're looking with hope to a new life in him. And as we pass through the waters, as we're lowered down, we're reminded that because we are baptized in Christ through the Spirit, he has taken the wrath that we deserve upon himself on the cross. And as we are lifted and washed by the water, we symbolically stand clean and new in Christ, knowing that it is his blood that has cleansed us from sin. We are no longer alone in our sinful flesh, but we are washed and clean and part of the body of Christ. I'm sure some of these brothers who have been on mission trips in other countries could tell us how different baptism is in those places where when someone steps in the water, it's almost a martyrdom for them because of what can happen because of making that public profession. Thank you. When we are baptized, we stand with others who have been washed, our brothers and sisters, others who were in sin but have been cleansed. It's a public act that says to the church, I am part of Christ's body. Amen. Amen. Brother Jay will share more on this two Sunday nights from, from tomorrow. Two Sunday nights from tomorrow. So I won't go as deep into foot washing. But I encourage you to be here for that. You know, foot washing is a humbling experience. And you, we're, we're indicating that it's coming. And so what you have to be careful of is that the enemy doesn't work on your mind. But I want you to be here that Sunday night because I want you to hear what the word of the Lord says and I want you to sense what it's like to be in that kind of relationship with other brothers and sisters. After passing through the Red Sea, the Israelites allowed fear and doubt and even sin to creep in. They were forced to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. And during that time, they grumbled, they complained, and sinned against God. The people who grumbled had to die out, and new people had to grow up. The nation had to let those who feared and sinned pass away. And those who looked to God's promises grow and mature. After 40 years, it was time to enter the promised land. Though the Israelites were already God's people, they were marked by 40 long years of wandering. Then there needed to be a new passing through the waters, a new cleansing to initiate them into God's good promises, to remind them of God's promises. This time, though, there was no going back to the Red Sea. No going back to the large body of water that they once faced, but there was a passing through of the Jordan River. Smaller, more shallow. The priest had to go and put their feet in the water. Interesting that five times in two verses in the book of Joshua, the priest's feet are mentioned as being in the water. Chapter 3, verse 13, verse 15. Chapter 4, verse 3. 
chapter 4, verse 9, chapter 4, verse 18. Five times in two chapters, over and over again, it talks about the feet of the priests being in the water. In the New Testament, Jesus washed the disciples' feet. Peter wanted a whole bath, a whole, a whole baptism. But Jesus emphasized that only his feet needed to be washed. In 1 Peter 2 and 9, the apostle states, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Peter tells us that we are God's priesthood. As believers, we may sometimes get stuck in the muck of the world in our life. And from time to time, as that priesthood of God, we may need to step in the water with our feet again. But not our whole bodies, just our feet. You get the picture? This is the purpose of foot washing. Time of prayer over others and washing and cleansing and looking to the Lord. And I'm looking forward to the teaching that will accompany that in a few weeks. As the nation of Israel passed through the Jordan River, the priests stood carrying the Ark of the Covenant in the midst of Jordan. I want to read to you Joshua chapter 4 verses 1 through 7 and share a few final points and then we'll move to baptism. Starting in verse 1 of Joshua chapter 4, it says, When the whole nation had finished crossing the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, Choose twelve men from among the people, one from each tribe, and tell them to take up twelve stones from the middle of the Jordan, from right where the priests are standing, and carry them over with you and put them down at the place where you stay tonight. So Joshua called the twelve men he had appointed from the Israelites, one from each tribe, and said to them, Go over before the ark of the Lord, your God, into the middle of the Jordan. Each of you is to take up a stone on his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of, Israel, of the Israelites, to serve as a sign among you. In the future, when your children ask you, what do these stones mean? Tell them that the flow of the Jordan was cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it crossed the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. These stones are to be a memorial stone to the people of Israel forever. At this church, Riverstone, named out of this passage of Scripture, we recognize that Scripture teaches us to keep certain ordinances so that when our children ask, why do you take communion? We will say, because the Lord has delivered us from the sins of our past. Yes. And when I say our children, hear what I mean by that. Our children. Not just me to my children, but when our children ask us collectively together, why do we do these things? Why do you participate in baptism? We will say because the Lord has taken our wrath upon himself and by his spirit he has washed us clean. When they ask why do we do foot washing? We will say there is a blessing in following the commands of the Lord to humble ourselves and to pray for our brothers and sisters. And so in the next couple of weeks, we were going to ask you to participate in all of these acts, communion, baptism, and foot washing, because they all point to the work of Christ in us, and they all serve as a memorial stone that we set up for the generations that will come after us that say, why do you do these things? And then we get to explain the good work of God that he has done within us.
if I recall correctly, there are some points along the way of Riverstone Church, some, some, some actual physical locations of places that the church is kind of birthed out of and things that we did in the early days. And from each of those places, I think Sister Darlene has collected stones has collected stones of a, as a memorial that at some point we'll put those stones together that the children can ask, what do these stones mean? And we'll talk about how the Lord Jesus Christ has built a church for his glory. How Jesus came along and Jesus worked in us and through us to serve one another in humility and grace. We'll, we'll, put, we'll put these stones together. We'll remember together where God has brought us from. We will not forget and we will humble ourselves before him to realize it is a work which he has done and not us ourselves. God in his graciousness and in his mercy. Will you stand with me as we pray together, as the musicians come, those of you who are being baptized, if you'll join us here in the front, we will uh, come together in prayer here and then we'll begin uh, a service where we will baptize individuals to the glory of God. Thank you again for being a part of Riverstone Church. I hope you enjoyed today's message and that it encouraged you to take a step closer to Jesus. Please reach out to us if there is anything we can pray for or talk with you about. To get more information about Riverstone Church, you can visit riverstonechurch.net. God bless you this week, and may you walk in all of Christ's promises and plans for your life.